take just a moment and uh, pray. Let's do like we did last time. Would you just uh, pray for me and pray for you that God would speak to us? All right. So just take a moment in silence and talk to the Father. So, Father, help us to speak your gospel in Jesus' name. In his name we pray. And we'll say amen later because <laughs> people think it means the end. And we need you to talk this whole time, Father, in, in Jesus' name. Last week, we uh, looked at this map right up here. And uh, we talked about the fact that all of these countries are descendants of brothers, and that these brothers all wanted God the Father to divide the inheritance between them. I mentioned that the descendants of Aram, the Arameans, are now known as the Syrians. Uh, the descendants of Judah are now known as the Jews. And the descendants of Ishmael, who's not listed on here, they're wandering around out in the desert, are Arabs, called Arabs. I noted that uh, some of these folks hate Americans, and uh, particularly uh, American Christians, because they think we've jumped into this ancient battle on the side of Judah, which uh, maybe some, some have. Now, according to scripture, God did give some land to, to the Jews, like we talked about last time, and yet he took it away from the Jews, but he did give it to the Jews in perpetuity. That's what Scripture says. Actually, Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he seems bound and determined to make everyone a Jew. But not through the power of the sword, through the power of God. There is one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and through all, wrote St. Paul, the former terrorist, who was converted on the road to Damascus in Syria. Last week, a couple came in to see me after the sermon. He appeared to be very angry and she was shaking. Her eyes were puffy and wet with tears. She said, Peter, 
I appreciate your ministry and, and I appreciate the words that you spoke in the sermon last Sunday, but do you understand that they were innocent victims in San Bernardino? They were people just like us. Her voice began to elevate and it was shrill and her eyes, they were piercing. Peter, it's easy for you to talk about the love of God, but that was evil. They were victims. We could be next. It was terrorism. And then she fell silent, waiting for me to answer. I collected myself and chose my words very carefully. I said, do you think that those 14 people were worse sinners than the rest of the residents of San Bernardino? Repent, or you will likewise perish. And do you think that those six people that died last month in the floods in Texas were worse offenders than all of the rest of the Texans? Repent, or you will likewise perish. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, you did not say that. <laughs> and you're right, I did not say that. However, Jesus did say that in a very similar situation. Luke 12, the man asked Jesus to divide the inheritance between him and his brother. Just like the sons asked Jesus to divide, or the father to divide the inheritance between them in Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present, or who had come at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pontius Pilate. In 63 AD, or BC, 63 BC, a powerful empire from overseas conquered that entire area that you saw up there on the map. Can you put that back up there again, uh, Michaela? Sorry, I forgot to mark that in my notes. But uh, an emperor from overseas conquered that entire area. In 26 AD, Pontius Pilate was appointed the governor of Judea. The Romans viewed the Jews as terrorists who resisted imperial rule. And the Jews viewed the Romans as foreign terrorists who took their inheritance and oppressed their people. Terrorism is a rather confusing word. We Americans usually reserve it for other people, not in positions of power like us. But if we go with Webster's definition that terrorism is the systematic use of terror as a means of coercion, then clearly Pilate was a terrorist and, and a religious uh, terrorist. When we visited uh, Jerusalem years ago, the guide um, showed us these etchings in the pavement at the Roman fortress next to the temple where Pilate tried Jesus. I took this picture while we were there. Uh, this picture is of the plaque explaining the, the etchings. They explained on this tour that they had to do with a religious game in which the Romans would dress victims like kings and mock them and scourge them and then crucify them as they sacrificed them to their Roman god, Saturn. In this way, you see, they could crucify criminals doing their civic duty and at the same time offer a sacrifice in worship to their deity. Some speculate that this is what happened to Jesus. Now, details are unclear, but it's very clear that Pilate and his centurions were terrorists. The chief instrument of Roman terror was the cross. 
At times, crosses would roam the high, or they would line the highways. I, I was roaming right there, but they would line the highways going into Jerusalem. Dissidents who wouldn't bow to the emperor were crucified publicly to send a clear message and to control the population with terror. Josephus, a Jewish historian, records a bunch of acts of terror around this time committed by Pilate and uh, the Romans against the Jews. Luke 13:1. it appears that Pilate's soldiers had slaughtered some Galilean Jews as they worshiped and sacrificed in the temple. Now, Galileans were like salt of the earth Jews. And the temple was absolutely sacred to the Jews, but not to Pilate. It's impossible for us to understand the depths of the offense that was committed, uh, which these messengers report to Jesus on this day. But you can hear what they're asking. Jesus, what do we do about the terrorists? I mean, that's not an entirely irrelevant question for us, is it? Several years ago, I read about half of the Koran. In my Koran, they have at home on my desk, I underlined this verse, Surah 47, verse 4. When ye encounter the infidels, strike off their heads till ye have a great slaughter among them, and of the rest make fast the fetters. I've learned that many Muslims believe that that verse refers to people living in Mecca about 1,300 years ago, but it's not stated in the text, and some obviously think it refers to us. Now, the Bible has some awfully violent texts, particularly in reference to Canaanites and the conquest of the Promised Land, that is, the inheritance about 3,500 years ago, but Jesus came, he clearly, Jesus clearly said, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies and be like your father in heaven. My kingdom is not of this world. And he's the king of the Jews. Both Old Testament Judaism and Islam, both Moses and Muhammad are very much into kingdoms of this world. And so it makes sense that their servants would fight. Donald Trump argues that we should fight and ban Muslims from immigration into the United States of America for a time. And listen, if our goal is to save our lives, that might make some sense to ban people who believe God commands them to cut off the heads of infidels. However, it would violate the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But no one really believes the Bill of Rights, that Congress should make no law establishing or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Nazism is a religion. Satanism is a religion. I would argue that patriotism is a religion. The Bill of Rights and definitely the Declaration of Independence are religion, law based upon nature's God. Maybe terrorism is a religion. I mean, it's a fundamental and systematic faith in the creating and saving power of violent competition and fear. So what do we do about terrorism? Well, since 9-11, we've declared war on terror. 
Maybe you've seen uh, this chart or a chart like this. This one is like five years old. I just found it on the internet. The red represents 9-11 victims. The gray represents American casualties in Afghanistan and Iraq. The blue represents Afghan civilian casualties. And the green, Iraqi civilian casualties, victims. For all I know, the chart may be rather inaccurate, but according to Wikipedia, the estimated number of Iraqi deaths due to war between 2003 and 2010 ranges from 151,000 to 1 million, and that's a lot. And none of those people were responsible for the 2,977 Americans that died in the 9-11 terrorist attack. Now listen really, really, really closely. I do not want to argue whether or not the United States should have gone to war. I just want to point out that our war on terror might not be working. Because I would imagine that there's some people in the Middle East that are even terrified of us. You know, the principalities and powers of this world, they run on terror. They use law and force to control with fear. That's why you pay your taxes, fear. That's why we have a different giving strategy at church, I hope. But it's fear, isn't it? Fear. Uh, the principalities and powers of this world fight terror with terror. And so at best, to restrain terror, they can only do it with threats of more terror, which is terror. And hear me closely. The governments of this world are supposed to do that. Called even to do that. But to beat terror. Oh, you need something far more powerful than just more terror. And if right now you're feeling a bit terrified, terrified, or, or may, which maybe I am, or, or feeling a little bit agitated, or perturbed, or angry with me, well, you see, I think maybe you're feeling a little bit of what these messengers felt when they came to Jesus saying, Jesus, did you hear about what happened in the temple? How Pilate mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices? Did you hear it? What do you have to say about that? Verse 2, and Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered Pasco. It's where we get the word, the passion. Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Apolumi, to, to lose or to be, to be lost. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who, who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wow. You know, in those four verses, Jesus covers human evil. He covers natural evil. And he covers evil in us. For we immediately grasp for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to justify ourselves, condemn someone else, and try to save ourselves with, with, with law. Jesus says, repent, or you will likewise perish. <laughs> repent. I mean, they must be thinking, Jesus, we don't need to repent. We're victims. Jesus, make Pilate repent. Use your superhuman God powers to make the Romans repent. 
repent. Metanoia in Greek, it's the word we looked at in the story of the prodigal son. Remember the older brother wouldn't repent, but the younger brother, the prodigal son, was repented by a kiss when the prodigal, uh, this boy, was at his very worst. When he was at his very worst, covered in failure and pig poop. The older brother would not repent. He would not party with his little brother, but his little brother was his inheritance. Jesus says, repent. And they must think, but we're victims. Are they victims? Are we victims? That's another confusing word. Webster's has two definitions. Number one, a living being sacrificed to a deity. Number two, someone that is acted upon and adversely affected. That is someone who experiences, you know, like a, a violation of their will. That's what we think of it. An innocent victim. Were they innocent victims? Are we innocent victims? Ezekiel 18, verse 4, God says, All souls, psyches, are mine. The soul that sins shall die. And so it should not surprise us that in the Old Testament, just about everyone, from the guy who picks up sticks on the Sabbath to Moses, who has a bad attitude toward a rock, they all, well, they all seem to be punished with death. The truly shocking thing in the Old Testament is that anyone is still alive. Genesis 2.16, the day God makes man, Adam, in his image, that day, God says to Adam, mankind, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Every time you judge something or someone, good or evil, you announce to the world, I ate from the tree, and I'm gonna die. So the big mystery, really, in all of scripture is, why are we not dead? <laughs> or maybe we are dead. We just don't know it. Or maybe the sixth day is not over yet, for on the seventh day, man is perfected in the image of God, and everything is good. And that means not dead. Repent, or you will likewise perish. See, Jesus acts like we're all guilty, and death is coming for us all. I did, I did a little calculating this week. Do you realize that on average, 153,000 people die each day in our world? That means that on 9-11, 1.9% of the people that died that day in this world died in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Last month, on the 13th of November, one out of 1,000 that died that day in this world died in the terrorist attacks in Paris. 0.1% of those that died that day. Last week, on Friday, one out of 10,000 people that died that day in this world died in the terrorist attacks in San Bernardino. 0.01%. And as far as dying goes, I think I'd rather have my head chopped off than slowly die alone in some nursing home somewhere. And now listen very, 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 very closely. I in no way mean to minimize or demean those deaths at the hands of those terrorists. I'm just reminding you that we all must die. 
and it must be terrifying. Could it be that we are not so much terrified of terrorists, but terrified of death? It's just that when terrorists terrify, it's much harder to maintain our denial of death and our illusion of control. You might say, but Peter, those deaths were untimely deaths. Listen very, very, very closely. There are no untimely deaths. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. My golem in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You might say, but Peter, those, those deaths were the result of evil. Listen very, very, very closely. All deaths are the result of evil. And now this is something truly terrifying. The evil is not only in them. It's in you. See, it's not like God kills some because some sinned. It's more like God kills all because all have sinned. Maybe you're terrified of God. Does that make God a terrorist? Jesus says, repent or likewise perish. Like, likewise, what the, what the hell does that mean? Likewise perish. I mean, think about this. How did almost all of Jesus' disciples perish? Didn't all of them, except for John who was exiled on Patmos, didn't, didn't all of them suffer excruciating deaths at the hands of Roman and Jewish terrorists? How did Jesus perish? In Jerusalem, where his blood was not only mingled with sacrifice, his blood was the sacrifice and he is the temple and it was right by the temple that he was sacrificed at the hands of Pilate, Jesus, the Galilean. He said to us, pick up one of these and follow. Jesus perished just like the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with that of sacrifice. And Jesus perished just like them and yet, not at all like them. So these men come to Jesus as victims of a horrifying terrorist event, and Jesus says, repent, or you will likewise perish. Verse 6, and he told a story. <laughs> story, you knew we were coming to it, right? He told a parable. A man had a fig, a fig tree. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic, but Luke is writing in Greek, so he was aware of the fact that fig, suke, and soul, suke, sound just alike in Greek. A man had a suke. A soul or a psyche, a suke, is at least, you know, a paradigm of thought, a way a person thinks. And Jesus has just told them that they need to change their paradigm of thought. That is, they need to repent. That's what it means. New mind, get a new mind, change their suki, their fig. Adam and Eve covered their nakedness in fig leaves. They cover their nakedness in fig leaves, having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of law. 
justifying yourself, constantly justifying yourself with law is a way of thinking, a psyche, a soul. A man had a, a psyche, says Jesus, planted in his vineyard. Everyone knew, Isaiah 5, 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And yet Israel has a fruitless psyche. A man had a psyche planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. The week before Jesus died, and just before he cleansed the temple, he came into Jerusalem looking for figs. Remember that? And he found a fig tree that bore no figs. And you remember what he did? He cursed it. It's weird. Within a few days, he would be cursed and nailed to a tree and perish, lose his life, and find it. He'd rise, transforming that tree of death into a tree of life. Pretty amazing story. And Jesus compares each one of us to a tree, or, may, or maybe two trees, in the garden of your soul. A man had a fig planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none, verse 7. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig, and I find none. Cut it down, more literally, uproot it, rip the thing out of the ground. Why should it use up, deplete the ground? And he answered him, sir, Lord, let it alone. Aphia me, let it be, forgive Suffer it. That's what the verb means. Suffer it. Uh, forgive it. Let it be this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Coprion is the Greek word. It's the Greek vernacular, vernacular for manure, which means manure is probably not the best translation. He said, put, put, put manure on it, then it should bear fruit next year. Uh, if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, rip it up. Now, I think it's really important that I accurately communicate the meaning of what the gardener says to the vineyard owner, okay? Basically, he says this. Lord, forgive it. Just let it be. I'll throw some shit on it, and we'll check it next year to see if it has fruit. <laughs> Do you ever pray to God saying, God, I know you love me. I know you forgive me, but... What's up with all the crap? <laughs> At staff meeting this week, Kimberly told me about a movie in which a man finds himself stranded on a world that's been cursed with death. Kind of reminds me of here and now in this world. Well, there is no life there on that world. Nothing will grow, but the man is saved by poop. I'm entering this log for the record. This is Mark Watney, and I'm still alive, obviously. I have no way to contact NASA or my crewmates, but even if I could, it would take four years for another manned mission to reach me, and I'm in a hab designed to last 31 days. So, in the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm gonna have to science the shit out of this. Okay. Let's do the math. I gotta figure out how to grow four years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, none of this matters anyway. Houston, be advised. We've got a video message. It's directed to the whole crew. Play it. 
Watney is still alive. In your face, Neil Armstrong. Now, I haven't seen the movie. Kimberly did. That's Ridley Scott's new movie, The Martian. That's from the trailer. Hope I didn't wreck it for you, but it's important to know that the man, the Adam, is surprisingly saved by poop. My grandpa was a farmer. One of the most important pieces of his farm uh, and all of its equipment was the manure spreader. The late author, eminent professor of religion, Phyllis Tickle, once said, God is both shit and fan. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't think that's entirely accurate, but I think it is accurate to say that God is sovereign, so God is in control of all the manure and every fan. And we all wonder, don't we? We wonder, why does shit happen? We'll ask my grandpa, and he'll say, well, hell, without it, you can't grow anything. No fruit. Maybe God is growing fruit like faith. And it grows in doubt. And grace. And it grows where sin increased. That's where grace abounds all the more. Faith, hope, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Maybe the tree that produces that fruit only grows in some pretty broken and crappy soil. Did you know that the cross is a tree? It's one word in Greek and Hebrew. Eights or skulon. It's, it's also a tree. It grows in a garden, John 19, 41, where Christ's body was placed in, in the ground. The fruit of the tree is body broken and blood shed. It's the love of God poured out, dispersed. In, in fact, you really wouldn't know who God is except for knowledge gained from that tree. But it's not just dead knowledge like law. It's resurrected and living knowledge, Jesus. The fruit of that tree is eternal life. There we die with Christ, and there we rise with Christ. The death is temporal. The life is eternal. But we all must die in order to truly live. The tree, a tree, you know, is a remarkable thing. Think about it. It takes dirt. Adama, and we're made of Adama. We're made of dirt. Dirt and poop. Our flesh is weird, but eats life and makes poop. A tree takes dirt and poop and mixes it with light and produces fruit. The cross takes sin and transforms it into grace. The cross takes fear and transforms it into faith. In fear and faithlessness, we took the life of God on that tree. It was sin and everything died. If you only take the good to justify yourself as if it were a law, your psyche is dead. It must be changed or uprooted. In fear and faithlessness, we took the life of God on that tree, the cross, but in faithfulness and love, God gave his life on that tree, the cross. When we receive his life as a gift, we bear the fruit that befits repentance, not fear, but faith in love, the logic of love, the logos of love. If you don't surrender your old psyche here and now, 
if you don't lose it before your body dies, the Lord may take drastic measures to uproot it in the future. Well, I just shared like a world of incredible philosophy and theology that I barely understand. But all you need to understand right now is what my grandpa understood, and that is that broken ground and poop makes stuff grow. I get this little magazine from the Voice of the Martyrs uh, ministry. Last week it contained a letter from this Syrian pastor. I just want to read some of it to you. Greetings in the name of the Lord. Now, he's anonymous, so for obvious reasons. The Lord Jesus, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Syria. We are one body of Christ. If one suffers, all others will suffer with him. No suffering is like the suffering in Syria right now. Syria was a very beautiful country with a population of more than 20 million. Christians were over 20% of the population, but right now, there are only 7%. Whatever evil things you can imagine are nothing compared to what is really happening in Syria. The destruction, the killing, the kidnappings. The extremists kidnapped one of my relatives. They cut off his head and they started to play soccer with his head. They take the children and put many of them in the oven to kill them. They kidnap the women and rape them and leave them naked in the streets. When they take any woman, they declare Allahu Akbar, God is great. Maybe 10 men take turns on one woman and rape her. They do that until the woman dies. They do this everywhere, especially to Christians. There is great evil, but at the same time, our God is great. God can turn all the evil to good. All the bad things in Syria, God will turn to good. That is our belief, that is our prayer. Before the war, not many people attended our church. We could not have imagined or dreamed about how the evangelical churches are right now. And by the way, evangelical means good news. Thousands of families attend the evangelical churches, Catholics, Orthodox, and Muslims. They came as refugees to Damascus. We are distributing hundreds of thousands of Bibles uh, to, to people, mostly to Muslims. Right now, there is a big revival inside the church, and the churches cannot seat any more people. Things sound pretty shitty in Syria right now. Pretty shitty and pretty fruitful. He continues telling stories like that and then concludes this way. Many Christians in Syria right now are choosing to stay on the front lines and it's difficult. You can stand beside us by battling through prayer. What kind of prayer? God protect us from Syrians? Or God be glorified in Syria? How is God glorified? By Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so how did Jesus 
fight terrorism. Well, you know the story. He spoke truth for three years through, through uh, truth. And, and even though he knew that it would get him killed, he spoke truth for three years. And at the right time, he journeyed. He journeyed from Galilee to Jerusalem. He spoke truth to the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees in the temple. Uh, they were terrorists. They controlled people with fear. And he spoke truth to King Herod and Pontius Pilate. He spoke truth to all the terrorists. And then he allowed the terrorists to kill him. He was a Galilean. The Pilate sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem, but he did not likewise perish. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom of this were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but it's not. Pilate said, don't you realize that I have power, power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no power over me unless it had been, well, I doubt he said it with that much passion because he was in control. He said, hey, you have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. You see, Jesus was no victim. He said, no one takes my life from me. I choose to lay it down. Jesus was no victim. And yet, He was the victim. He was and is the victim of love. And God is love. Jesus knew, he knew that the Father is good. And he knew that the Father is in total control. And so he surrendered his will to the Father's will. It must have been utterly terrifying. But Jesus did not surrender to terror. He transformed fear into faith, faith in love. Luke records that as he hung on the tree, he cried, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive who? Forgive the terrorists. You see, he really did not likewise perish. He did not perish in faithlessness and fear and so he was not trapped by death but having journeyed through a universe of pain having descended into hell at the ninth hour Luke records that the curtain in the temple ripped and Jesus cried out with a great voice saying father into your hands I commit my spirit and he expired he surrendered his life to love and God is love He perished. The word is apolumi. It's also translated lose. Jesus said, unless you lose your life, unless you perish your psyche, unless you lose your life for my sake, you cannot find it. Jesus did not likewise perish, trapped by the fear of death in a living death. Jesus surrendered his life as a sacrifice of love. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that it was at this moment. It was at this moment when the Roman centurion saw how Jesus breathed his last and surrendered up his spirit. It was at this moment that the terrorists, that is the Roman centurion and those that were with them cried out, surely this man was the son of God. It was then that they repented. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He appeared to the woman 
and to the women, and he said, don't be afraid. No more fear. Scripture says fear is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus is, literally, wisdom incarnate. And at first, he'll really stress you out. I mean, at first, God is absolutely terrifying. He terrorizes terrorists who know nothing but terror. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111, but perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4. God is love. And Jesus is the word of love. Uh, Jesus has been fighting terrorism ever since Adam and Eve hid themselves in fig leaves and trees so long ago. And God won the war on terror on a tree in a garden where we took his life and he forgave his life. He is good. He always, always wins and has always won. He is eternal. But now we get to watch the victory unfold in space and time. When you believe the victory, that's called faith, you have eternal life. Do you realize that you cannot be a victim of terrorism if you cannot be terrorized? <laughs> and what is it that we are terrified of? Isn't it death? Hebrews 2.14, scripture says that the Lord partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. You see what that means? The power of death is your own fear of death. And the devil is the ultimate terrorist. As Jesus once told my wife, with fear, you put flesh on the evil one. We're terrified to die, to lose our psyche, ourself. And suicide is not dying to yourself. You can't kill yourself with yourself. We're all terrified, though, to truly die. We're terrified to die, but if we don't die, we can't live. Truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat, a seed, Jesus says, falls on the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You know, faith is death and life. Every time you trust God, instead of trusting yourself, you, you die to yourself. And you begin to live an eternal life, a fruitful life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, joy. You begin to join the party. It could be that we wealthy, self-satisfied, and proud American Christians are so afraid to die that we can no longer live or party. Remember that in the story of the prodigal son, it's the wealthy, self-righteous, and proud older brother who refuses to die to himself and share the inheritance with his brother who then traps himself in outer darkness and just can't get himself to join the party. And it's the younger brother of whom the father says he was dead and is alive. He was lost. The Greek word, he was perished and is found. It's him that can party, the one that had died. 
One day when my father was dying, because my dad died a long, painful death. I watched it. One day while he was dying, my four-year-old nephew, Jared, called my dad. He said, hey, Poppy, could I come over to your house and eat ice cream with you one more time before you die? <laughs> and my dad said, sure, Jared, that'd be great. He wouldn't let fear of death spoil the ice cream. And Jesus said to his disciples on the night he was betrayed, I have longed, I've been looking forward to eat this meal with you. He would not let fear of death spoil the ice cream. Paul wrote that this is a clear omen to your opponents of their destruction and your salvation. It's fruit, it's, it's faith, and it's growing in Syria, and that's how we beat terrorism. But... If you give in to terror, you trap yourself in death. And I think you start following someone other than Jesus. You should read the, you should read the Quran if you're interested, okay? But you should know Muhammad taught that basically all the stuff about Jesus is true. Except that part about him being God or the son of God, and especially that part about him dying on a cross. So you can have all the t-shirts and Bible covers and bumper stickers and, and miracles that you want. You just can't have a God who chooses to suffer. Seems to me that Muhammad rejected the cross, which is the tree of life, which dispenses grace and returned to a religion of law governed by fear. This is Surah 2, verse 277. God does not love, he does not love the unfaithful. Surah 35, verse 34. For the unfaithful is the fire of hell. To die shall never be decreed to them. I, I think that's endless, endless death, and you can't find endless death in the Bible. Surah 4, verse 59. The voices said to Muhammad, we will, in the end, cast into the fire. So often as their skins shall be well burnt, we shall change them to fresh skins that they may taste the torment. Surah 47, verse 8. If you help God, God will help you. That is, God helps those who help themselves. If you thought that was in the Bible, it's not. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God is salvation. Yeshuata, in a word, Jesus. And according to scripture, he is consuming fire, but not that endlessly torments the unfaithful. Consuming fire that consumes unfaithfulness and death and makes all things new. God is love, and he makes all things new, including Syrian terrorists like St. Paul. God is love, and nothing is more powerful than love. But do you see what happens when we surrender to terror? We trap ourselves in death, refusing to die, and we reject the Messiah. When I listen to our national debate about the danger of Syrian refugees, and when I witness our terror of Muslims because they might be terrorists and we might lose our lives, I begin to wonder if maybe it's not Jesus that we're really following so much anymore. I think maybe Moses, or even more, Muhammad, is who unexamined, terrified Christian people want Jesus to be. 
But Jesus is not the same as Muhammad or Moses. Jesus is the incarnation and ultimate revelation of absolute, unfailing, eternal, and perfect love. God is love. And this is how he beats terrorism and redeems the terrorists. He took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant. What is the power with which he makes all those brothers, all those people, one family, a covenant? This is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. In this, says scripture, in this is love. Perfect love. So close your eyes, just close your eyes. And I, I want you to pray this prayer after me, all right? And you can just pray it silently in your heart so you're not distracted by anyone. You don't need to judge anyone. We're not gonna examine you on this. Just, just pray this in your heart. Pray, Father in heaven, what am I so afraid of? could be death. Maybe it's someone else's death. In other words, you're afraid that you are not their savior. Isn't it some form of losing control? And maybe you thought that your life was your control. But it's not. Maybe you're afraid of your lack of faith. That is, maybe you're afraid of your own sin. That is, maybe you are afraid of your own fear. Afraid of your fear and afraid not to be afraid. <laughs> oh, that's your psyche of fear. That's your prison of flesh. There's only one to fear, said Jesus. 
and that one is perfect love. So now pray this after me. Father in heaven, I give you my psyche, myself, my fear, Thank you for your psyche, yourself, Jesus. In his name, amen.
And so, Father, we pray for your body, our body in the Middle East, that you would give them courage, that you would give them love, that they would know that they commune with you, Lord Jesus, in their sufferings. And if we are joined with you in a death like yours, we will surely be joined with you in a resurrection like yours. And none of us can even begin to fathom the party. And so, Lord God, we pray for them. And we pray for us that we would believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. And so that's benediction. <laughs> Everything I said today was simply this. Believe the gospel. And you will live the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.